Welcome to Living Word Ministries with director and Bible teacher, Debbie Blank. Each week, Debbie examines current events through the lens of end times Bible prophecies. Please visit our website for information and past programs at livingwordministry.org. Now let's open our Bibles to focus on truths from God's Word with Debbie Blank. I've always enjoyed a good whodunit movie or play. It gets my juices flowing, playing detective by trying to solve the mystery as to who committed the crime. Hollywood mysteries are pretty easy to solve, but biblical mysteries are not. As a matter of fact, the biblical definition for mystery is something hidden until it's revealed. So we can only know the answer to God's mysteries once he reveals them. Today, we're going to follow the clues to try and solve a puzzle of biblical proportions. It's going to take a couple of weeks to unfold chapters 17 and 18 of Revelation, but it will be worth it. I'm Debbie Blank, welcoming you to Living Word Ministries. And I'm co-host Jackie Sailors. In Disney's The Beauty and the Beast, the main characters are the sweet and beautiful Belle and a terrifying beast, who is really a handsome man cursed by an evil spell. The mystery here was whether the man could be freed from the spell before it was too late. By contrast, Revelation 17 could be called the harlot and the beast, with a horrible, immoral woman and a horrible, terrible beast. And the mystery is the identity of the harlot and her mysteriously strange relationship with the beast who derives his power from Satan. And the key to unlocking this mystery can be found in discovering what the Bible means by the word mystery. In the recent past, we've looked at Revelation 13, so we've read about this false prophet, the leader of the global religious system of the last days, whose position was to lead the world to worship the beast. So we have this religious system that's already been identified in Revelation, and we have the beast who is also identified. Yet today, we're going to find out more about this religious system, which is known as Babylon, or Mystery Babylon, a.k.a. the Great Harlot, in the chapters of 17 and 18. You may recall when God gave the overview of the final judgments in Revelation 14, he did specifically mention Babylon, or more specifically, the fall of Babylon. When he said in Revelation 14, 8, and another angel, a second one, followed saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the Great. She has made all the nations to drink of the wine of the passion of her immorality. Now, chapter 13 of Revelation didn't call her Babylon, but chapter 14 did. They're correlated in that she is this religious system. Then when God announced his seventh bowl judgment, what it says in Revelation 16, 9 is the great city was split into three parts and the cities of the nations fell. Babylon the Great was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of his fierce wrath. So we know that this religious system is going to be destroyed by God. We've been given this general overview. Today, we're going to get more specific about that. So we have clues from the past about Babylon, about the beast in Revelation, previous verses. We have also some clues in other parts of the Bible. But what you've done is you set out a set of clues of how we're supposed to figure out what Babylon the Great is, who is this harlot. So starting with that, the mystery of this religious system, here's the first clue. The first clue is the great harlot and talks about immorality. So explain why the harlot 
and calling this woman a harlot is so important in understanding what's going on here. Well, let me read the first two verses of Revelation 17 to get a clear picture. It says, And one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and spoke with me, saying, Come here, I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth committed acts of immorality. And those who dwell in the earth were made drunk with the wine of her immorality. That's almost a direct quote out of Revelation 14. So here we have one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls. We know from chapter 16 that the final judgments on the earth were poured out by angels having seven different bowls. Doesn't tell us which angel it is or what bowl they poured out, though it would make sense that it was the seventh bowl since that one talked about Babylon. But that's not significant. What's significant as we move on in verse one is it says, I will show you the judgment of the great harlot. When it's talking about judgment here, this is God's legal decision that he has made based on the facts that have been given him or that he has seen regarding this great harlot. An example of that would be that someone who's committed a crime has gone before the judge. The judge has listened to all the facts and determined that the person was guilty. That's the idea that we see here. So God is going to judge this great harlot. Now, in the King James Version, she's called a whore. We know that that kind of a person identified in the Greek with the word porne or porne, which we get pornography from, makes us think that she was a physical harlot, someone who committed physical infidelities with people. But in the scriptures, a harlot means spiritual fornication. It's those people who leave their true God, as the Israelites often did, to follow after other gods. That's what the great harlot represents, is some religious system that is given up on their true God to follow someone else. We know from Revelation 13 that all the peoples on the earth are going to be forced to worship the Antichrist and to worship a statue of him and to take the mark of the beast, which is a form of worship to him. So it makes sense that this religious system would be called a great harlot, someone who's followed somebody besides God. It actually is picturing unfaithfulness to God by someone who claims to honor him. So this is a religion that may claim to honor the one true God, but does not truly follow in that path. And this spiritual adultery, the reason it's called adultery is so that human beings can understand what it's like for God to feel like he's been betrayed by people, again, who are supposed to be honoring him, and yet they're going off with any and every other God that comes along. When I think about the book of Hosea and how God had him illustrate what that was like as far as marital adultery, Hosea was instructed to marry a woman named Gomer who ended up being adulterous, unfaithful, like a prostitute where she was with many men. So it wasn't just one adultery. And you read the book of Hosea and you feel so sorry for Hosea and you really have a heart for that. But that's an illustration to us of what it's like for God, for people to be idolatrous instead of worshiping him. And we also see that way back in Leviticus chapter 20, verse six, when it tells us that as for the person who turns to mediums and to spiritists to play the harlot after them, I will also set my face against that person and will cut him off from among his people. God's equating there the idea of spiritists or paganism or idolatry with harlotry. So we see several examples in the Old Testament of that harlotry. Here it tells us in verse 1, the second clue that we see is this harlot sits on many waters. 
That's a strange analogy until we turn to verse 15. In verse 15, it says, And he said to me, the angel saying to John, The waters which you saw where the harlot sits are peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. What that means is that this great harlot has power over all the people of the world. Because as we have discussed before, that statement, that phrase, people and multitudes and nations and tongues represents the entire world, Jews and Gentiles alike. So she has power over them. That's unique for a religious system to have power over the whole world. We don't see that right now. But that's telling us that in the future, this false prophet and this religious system are going to be part of the world kingdom and part of the power behind it. Who do they have power over? The third clue tells us that they have worldwide influence because they sit on the many waters with whom the kings of the earth committed acts of immorality. Immorality here, and then later in that verse, is pornea, same Greek word meaning idolatry or fornication. The kings of the earth represent all the leaders of the entire earth. So the religious system has control over all the political leaders. That's unique. We don't see that now. We see some religions that do. For example, Islam has control over 55 nations in our world who are Islamic nations who follow the rule of law of Islam. When it comes to Christianity, you only have a few nations in the world that consider themselves Christian nations. Greece is one. The United States is one. Certainly the Vatican would be considered one. It's a city state. But there are very few, yet there are some. Now, under this great harlot, all the kings of the earth are going to be under her power. And not just the kings of the earth. It also tells us that she has worldwide influence over the people. Because verse 2 says, And those who dwell in the earth were made drunk with the wine of her immorality. Now, we're not talking about actually drinking alcohol. It means they were intoxicated with the false spiritual direction that she was leading them. She had this amazing ability to get them to do what she wanted them to do, to influence them in a way that took them away from God into her pornea or her immorality. We think about relationships between politics and religion right now, and sometimes there are unwise or even unethical influences between the two. And we know that that's something dangerous that you really shouldn't put together in uh, that kind of a way. And yet it says here that the kings of the earth are committing acts of immorality with her. So they and the earth dwellers are in an unethical, immoral relationship with each other. And then it goes on to tell us in verse three that we have a fourth clue. And that is that this harlot, this religious system is seated upon the beast. It says, and he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness. And I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast full of blasphemous names, having seven heads and 10 horns. Now, next week, we're going to talk more thoroughly about this scarlet beast. But he is simply the Antichrist, the world system run by the Antichrist that we saw in Revelation 13, when he was called the beast at that point, where he blasphemed God. We were told then that he had seven heads and 10 horns. We'll talk about that next week, so stay tuned for that. Today, we're focusing on the religious system. So when we look at verse 3, we see that she, the religious system, is sitting on the beast. That sounds like she is controlling 
or at least riding along with him in power. We know from previous scripture that the Antichrist, the beast, the political system will have complete power in this world. But it's not just him. It's also this false religious system that points the world to worship him. So they're in cahoots together, as you just mentioned. They both have great power, and they're both working towards the same end goals. At least temporarily, they are each benefiting from that relationship with one another. That's right. Now, verse 4 goes on to give us a little more information. It says, The woman was clothed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a gold cup full of abominations of the unclean things of her immorality. So we have a couple of clues here in verse 4. The first one is that she is extremely wealthy. You don't have purple or scarlet or gold or precious stones and pearls unless you are wealthy. This is the tribulation period. There's going to be a problem with wealth. If you go back to the third seal, when it was broken in Revelation 6, 5, it says that the living creature said, I looked and behold a black horse and he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard as it were a voice in the center of the four living creatures saying a quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius. And yet... No harm was to be towards the oil and the wine. That told us back then that there was going to be huge famine in the world, that there's going to be a disparity between the rich and the poor because the oil and the wine was held by the rich. And they're not harmed, it seems, but the poor are. So you have a tremendous amount of poverty in the world. And you can imagine, too, with all the people dying and all the uproar of the earth and the elements, that life's going to be really tough, and yet she's really wealthy. Well, the rich get richer, and the more powerful get powerful. When you have Satan controlling the world, he can provide anything he wants to anyone he wants. He can give them the wealth that they so desire. Perhaps they have had wealth all through the centuries, and it's just demonstrated now, or perhaps this is new wealth. She is being showered with excess wealth, to prove her value to the beast. And she is enjoying it. It's interesting because they probably both benefit. We talked about them benefiting from each other power-wise, but also wealth-wise. So it makes you wonder how or where they got that wealth when everyone else is so poor. But as you said, Satan is not held back by any kind of moral restrictions like the rest of us are. When you're dealing with evil, anything goes. They can do whatever they need to do in order to get that wealth. The sixth clue can also be seen in verse four, where it says that in her hand was a cup full of abominations of the unclean things of her immorality. Well, many people see that cup as a contrast or an imitation of Christ at the Last Supper, where that cup represents the blood that he shed for mankind. And yet she's carrying a cup of abominations, of unclean things of her immorality, which means anti-blasphemous things against God. Could very well be that deception that we saw in chapter 13, when the false prophets had two horns like a lamb, looking and appearing to be peaceful like Christ, but not. And then when we move on to verse 5, we see the clue, Mystery Babylon the Great. It reads, And upon her head a name was written, a mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and of the abomination of the earth. So it's a mystery. 
What does a mystery mean? Well, we gave the definition earlier. It means something hidden that can't be fully understood now, but only revealed by God. In the New Testament, there were all kinds of mysteries. In 1 Corinthians 15, 51, we see the mystery of the rapture. When Paul said, behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. Well, a lot of people didn't understand what that rapture meant at that time, but we do now as we study the whole of Scripture. In Ephesians 5, we're told the mystery is great, and that's Christ and the church. How Christ is the head of the church. Well, that's kind of hard to understand in some ways because Christ is in heaven and we're on earth. Probably the most difficult to understand for all those people back then was Colossians 1.27, when it talked about the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ living in you. When I used to teach Awana, it was hard to explain to little kids how Christ can live in your heart because they see things more on a tangent level, and this was intangent. But Christ in you, the hope of glory, that's the Holy Spirit living in us and teaching us about Jesus Christ. That was a mystery. Mark 4.11 talks a mystery of the kingdom of God. Jesus mentioned that all the time as he talked about parables. Uh, in Romans 11, we're told that there's going to be a mystery, that the partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Well, what does that mystery look like? We'll know when the fullness of the Gentiles come in. So there are lots of mysteries in Scripture that we just don't totally understand at the time. We have to wait until the future. Now, we can conjecture, and we may do that a little bit today. So we need to stand on the facts here of what we see rather than guessing or conjecturing since Babylon is a mystery. As we see this written on her forehead, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth, it makes me think of the mark of the beast on the forehead and on the hand, and also how the Lord marks his people on their forehead so that they're identified. So it's interesting that she has this identification on her, and it says the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. What would make her the mother of harlots? Oftentimes in Scripture, religious denominations or religious beliefs are considered female. The church, for example, in our day and age is considered female. And when we look back into the origins of Babylon, how Babylon brought in the first part of paganism that we see in this world, it came from a woman. What does that mean? Well, we don't really know historically, but we do know traditionally what that means. If we go back to Genesis 10, 9 and 10, we see that the city of Babylon was built by Nimrod. Nimrod's name meant we shall rebel. And he did. He rebelled against God, as we saw in Genesis 11, when he tried to build the Tower of Babel, which was in that area of Babylon. So historically, the city of Babylon has been associated with sorcery and idol worship and spells and graven images. We can see that in Isaiah 47 and Jeremiah 50. So it's not surprising that Babylon's founder that through him, we would end up seeing the mother cult type of worship. Now, this is all traditional. It's not biblical. But there was an historical woman named Semiramis who was the wife of the 9th century B.C. Assyrian king. Now, legend has it that she reigned 42 years after he died. And this was much longer after Nimrod had been on the earth. But this tradition here says she became known as the Queen of Heaven. And she had a son named Tammuz who was conceived by a sunbeam, then killed by a boar, then resurrected on the feast of Ishtar. 
Now, there's also a tradition, and this contradicts the one I just read, that says that Nimrod, way back at the time of Noah, married his mother named Semiramis. And after his untimely death, his mother wife commemorated him as a spirit being. That's when she became known as the queen of heaven. And he, her son, became known as the divine son of heaven. And so over time, he was considered as a false God, or more appropriately known as the son of Baal. So when you think of Babylon, it goes well past the historical aspect when they destroyed Israel to the pagan worship that began with them thousands and thousands of years ago. So she is the mother of all paganism, all idolatry. If we look back in history, literally, Babylon was the source of that. If you look into scripture or in secular history, we know that Babylon is the source of that. And it's natural then that we'd run into verse 8, which is clue number 9, that Babylon's a persecutor of the church. It says, And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the witnesses of Jesus. And when I saw her, I wondered greatly. So this particular religious system has been persecuting believers in Jesus Christ, believers in the Old Testament, because it says the saints, and those are Old Testament saints too, that this harlot has been persecuting the believers in Jesus Christ since time began, not just since the beginning of Christ and the church. Well, then we move on to verse nine that says, here is the mind which has wisdom. The seven heads and seven mountains on which the woman sits are seven kings. And I'm not going to go on there because we'll discuss that next week with the beast. But it says here again that the woman is sitting on the beast, but the beast Seven heads represent seven mountains. We know from Daniel 2.45 that mountains represent kingdoms. So this woman, again, this proves her power that she's sitting on and controlling the kings of the earth and the kingdoms of the earth. Now, where it really gets confusing is after we've heard all about this religious system and who she is and what she's done, it tells us in verse 18 of Revelation 17 And the woman whom you saw is the great city which reigns over the kings of the earth. Well, wait a minute. How can she be a religious system and a city at the same time? Well, we have an example of that in our culture today, and that's Rome, the Vatican. That is a city, state, legally, politically. It's also a religion. You can see that in Mecca. Mecca is a city, and yet it's also known as the most religious city in Islam. So we've got a couple of examples of those now. I'm not saying that either one of them are the answer to this, but we can understand how the religious system could be identified with a city. For example, New York is a city, but it's identified with money, Wall Street. It's a different scenario, but you see how a city can be recognized as something else. Debbie, you've given us quite a few clues that we've gotten from the passage in Revelation. Those verses have given us clues as to who the woman is. So now that we've gone through all of them, who do you think the woman is? Who is this harlot? Well, remember, she's a mystery. So I don't believe anyone will really know until this time comes, till the rapture of the church has taken place and this whole new religious system is developed. However, I will tell you three different scenarios that people have made. One is that this deals with the papacy within the Catholic Church. There's many clues here that match up with that of the ones that we've read. It's also the religion that's been around the longest. 
since shortly after the time of Christ, with the papacy coming about in, some people say it, with Peter, and other people say more in the fourth century, but no other Christian religion has been around that long. You also need to understand that Rome was in existence at the time that this was written. People understood the importance of that city. The new empire of the Antichrist will be a revived Roman empire, so it could make sense that the city of Rome would be the center of all of this. And then also in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 13, Peter says, She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you greetings, and so does my son Mark. There's no proof at all that there was a church in Babylon at the time that Peter wrote this. Many believe that he was referring to Rome, that he was in Rome at this time. So Babylon can be synonymous with Rome in the Bible, just as we saw in chapter 11, where Sodom and Egypt were mentioned in correlation with Jerusalem. He could be referring to Rome. That's one scenario. A second scenario is Islam, because Islam is prominent in the area where Babylon currently is. So it could be that. Also consider that the 12th Imam, which is a religious belief prophetically of the Muslims, if he is the Antichrist, then it makes sense that Islam would be the religion that would point to the Antichrist or the 12th Imam and encourage people to worship him. And then you have the fact that this particular entity is going to kill and has killed the saints down through the centuries. People will say that didn't happen with the papacy, but then it did during some of the times of the papacy. That's the second one. The third one is just simply idol worship or humanism, or however you want to say it, anything that is controlled by Satan, because that's been around since the time of Nimrod. Any anti-religion, any idolatry is against God. It has been destroying the blood of the saints. It does not stand or start with Jesus Christ. It starts from the beginning of time. And it also, of course, would go along with worshiping the Antichrist, that idol worship, which we saw in Daniel chapter 3, when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and all the other people were forced to worship the statue of King Nebuchadnezzar. We have a correlation here where the people are forced to worship the statue of the Antichrist. So it could be any of those three scenarios. I don't know which. Could be another one. It's a mystery. And only God knows the answers to those mysteries. What we're seeing here is an apostate religion, which is opposite of the true church. It has a harlot leading it, whereas we are the bride of Christ. That was founded in the wilderness, according to Revelation 17. And yet the true church will be in heaven with Jesus Christ. The apostate religion is adorned by Satan and worships Satan, whereas we're adorned by Christ and worships him. The apostate religion is going to be judged forever. We, on the other hand, are going to reign forever with Christ. It's stained by the blood of the martyrs. We are the martyrs. And the martyrs are redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. So there's a huge difference between these two religious systems. And it shouldn't be surprising because today we have 4,300 religions in the world. We even have 45,000 Christian denominations. So how can we know which is right? Well, it's not a mystery. The answers can be found in the Bible. The only book written by God to tell us who he is and to give us the road to salvation. If we don't know and follow the Bible, we're going to be susceptible to believing all these other religions. And certainly people will fall into this apostate religion in the end times. So now is the time to turn to Jesus. Now is the time to find the truth. 
Find the truth in the Bible that talks about God, because all the other books written by all the other people claim to be true, but they do not have the validity that the word of God has in the Holy Scriptures, all 66 books. Read the Bible. Get to know the God of the Bible. Then you will know the truth, and that truth will set you free. Thank you for joining us today on Living Word Ministries with Debbie Blank. This is a listener-supported show. If you'd like to support this program or contact Debbie Blank, you may do so at P.O. Box 540-003, Omaha, Nebraska, 68154, or visit our website at livingwordministry.org. Please tune in each week at this same time for Living Word Ministries with Debbie Blank.